0: Welcome to Paranormal Coffee Hour. I'm your host, Jen, with my co host here, Courtney. We are pouring you a strong cup of the weird, the wonderful, and the woohoo. Today is our very first podcast episode, though this is not our first Paranormal Coffee Hour. We have been doing Paranormal Coffee Hour for a little bit now. And so let's give a little explanation here as to what a Paranormal Coffee Hour is like. Courtney, how would you describe our Paranormal Coffee Hours?
1: Just a bunch of people, drink coffee every morning, and discuss in the woo-hoo.
0: Absolutely. So today's woo-hoo, or weird, or who knows, maybe it's your wonderful, is the Great Lakes Triangle. So for those of you who are not located where we are, which is in Wisconsin, let's give you a little information about the Great Lakes. I'm going to hand it over to Courtney here, and she's going to tell you a little bit about our lovely Great Lakes in this region.
1: Great Lakes are a system of five large inland bodies of water that border northeast U.S. and southeastern Canada, formed thousands of years ago by glaciers which gouged out the basins that are now filled with water. The lakes named are Superior, Michigan, our home, Huron, Erie, and Ontario. And they're all interconnected by the rivers.
0: Are we living in Lake Michigan? Is that our home?
1: I'm just saying, we are actually connected to Lake Michigan. It's a couple-hour drive, and it's right there. Before the Europeans arrived, the Native Americans navigated the lakes and rivers to trade with each other. European colonizers also found the system of waterways vital for getting around, exploring, founding towns, and setting up a trading network. But they soon found out how hazardous the waters can be.
0: Monsters,
1: not quite. Well, that we know of. The Great Lakes is a site of hundreds of wrecks of ships and dozens of aircraft, but is not the Bermuda Triangle. So it may surprise many people that one of the worst areas for non-war-related area and shipping disasters is not a treacherous ocean, but a series of inland lakes. The Great Lakes in the U.S. have seen the demise of no less than 6,000 ships and tens of thousands of lives. One of the worst periods was from the mid 19th century to the 20th century when shipping traffic was at its peak. And out of all five of the lakes, Michigan seems to be the most dangerous. Many ships and planes in this lake haven't necessarily crashed, but they have vanished altogether.
0: Oh boy. So we've got a big lake that we're next to here, Lake Michigan. And it seems like there'd be treasure in it, wouldn't it?
1: You would think so. I know.
0: Too bad I don't like to go scuba diving. Damn claustrophobia. Help me out. <laughs> so Lake Michigan from a distance seems to be this real tranquil body of water that's more like a sea than a lake. But here's the thing. Lake Michigan is a part of the massive North American chain of Great Lakes. Now, many of you probably know that includes Lake Superior. Lake Superior. Lake Huron, Lake Erie, Lake Ontario, and of course, like we said, Lake Michigan. Lake Michigan itself, though, is 307 miles long, 118 miles wide. And it is the second largest of these lakes by volume, so water content, and third largest by surface area. It is the only Great Lake completely within U.S. boundaries. Though sometimes we wonder about Michigan. It averages 279 feet deep, and at its deepest It is a 923 feet. It boasts 1,640 miles of shoreline on which 12 million people call home. But there's one statistic of this lake that many do not know about. Stretching westward from Manitowoc, which by the way is about 30 minutes or miles south of Green Bay. And then from Manitowoc, it stretches eastward towards Ludington, Michigan. And for those of us in Wisconsin, we know that's where the Badger Ferry goes. And then south towards Benton Harbor, Michigan, and then back towards Manitowoc. So this area forms a triangle, and it's known as the Lake Michigan Triangle. And the Lake Michigan Triangle shares characteristics of the Bermuda Triangle, but not the cool shorts, unfortunately. The Lake Michigan Triangle is home to the Lake Michigan Stonehenge Trippy, not just reserved for England, which was found beneath its northern territories. Odd weather patterns, strange happenings, and peculiar events seem to happen in this area. Where do we go next, Courtney?
1: We are going to discuss the Great Lakes just in general right now because there is quite a bit of happening in just the Great Lakes itself. In 1679, the ship, the Le Griffin, was built by its captain, Rene Robert Lassell, and it happened to vanish. The same year. It was a super expensive ship. The fittings and armaments had been brought over from France. It was a beautiful two master which was built square rigged of mizzen top sail of forty-five tons and burdened and armed with five brass cannon.
0: Why so fancy?
1: They had the money. It had already sailed up Lakes Erie and Huron. It had reached Washington Island, Green Bay in Lake Michigan. He needed to get some of his money back, so they loaded it with furs and were heading back to Niagara. When it went missing, it was under the command of Pilot Lucas. He was a giant Danish sea captain, and he was aided by five able seamen. Cap- <laughs> <laughs> what kind of seamen? <laughs> able seamen. Five of them. Big strapping able seaman. Captain LaSalle and the rest of his crew headed south to the Mississippi. It was last seen by the Pottawam...
0: Pottawamac?
1: Bless you. Indians. As it passed eastward through Mackinac Strait, which is up between Michigan and... Michigan. Michigan and Michigan. (laughs) It connects between Michigan and Superior, correct? No trace has ever been found, except some wreckage seen at the following year by <laughs> LaSalle himself. Claims have been made in the last few decades of wrecks on Huron in Michigan and one in the St. Clair River, but none are the Legriffin completely gone.
0: So it vanished. Yep. Never to be found, not even its brass or its semen.
1: As of right now, nothing. They've been trying.
0: No semen found. So, we're going to continue on here with our discussion of lost ships and seamen. The most recent ship lost was the freighter, the SS Edmund Fitzgerald, which many people know because of the, the song. It sank in Lake Superior during a storm in 1975, taking all 29 of its crew down with it. Largest of the ships to have sunk in the Great Lakes. that is that it?
1: To also take a boat ride and see it I
0: think you can I think it's actually visible like you can you can see it so yeah yeah I've never done that I've only ever been on Lake Superior like once and honestly it is kind of a creepy lake compared to Lake Michigan which I'm used to Lake Superior is like Dark and ominous.
1: I've heard it is so deep and so dark that if you die on that lake, your body will never be found because it doesn't have a chance to decompose. So it just drops to the bottom. That's it.
0: Is that where that one ship sunk that has the ghost?
1: Oh, I think so. Oh, the SS loops.
0: Oh, the SS loops, That's right. I think there's a I think there's a ghost. On the Camloops. Yes,
1: it was Lake Superior. Hot
0: dang! So the creepiest haunted wreck on Superior is the SS Camloops. It's the it was its last day on the Isle Royale in Lake Superior. Makes it sound so fancy, doesn't I it? I feel
1: like I'm in the Bahamas now. I, know.
0: I know. Well, you know, we got the triangle going on. Might as well get the shorts and everything else. 1927 is when this is happening. The engine room houses. Um, on the SS Cam Loops, seems to host a ghost. A ghost. <laughs> Time. I'm breaking out the Dr. Seuss for this one. Hosts a ghostly spirit known as Grandpa. Now, Grandpa is known to float up behind divers and follow them through the engine room. I would probably, like, throw an elbow or throw back a fist if Grandpa was behind me.
1: This is why I don't dive.
0: Well, that and, and claustrophobia. But hey, um, yeah, that's insane. Could you imagine diving down there looking at fish and thinking you have like a buddy behind you and suddenly you look and there's grandpa. No tank, no nothing. just. Nope. <laughs> nope. I'd probably just, I'd
1: probably drown myself. Thanks, grandpa.
0: I would still probably shit my pants.
1: <laughs> that would be a high possibility.
0: <laughs> anyway. So, yeah, yeah, we have grandpa. Now, they think he might be looking for his lost crew. That or grandpa, being like a lot of grandpas, just loves to pull a good gag on people. Good joke. I don't know why they call him grandpa either. Maybe he looks like a grandpa. Maybe he calls himself grandpa.
1: That's possible, too. I don't
0: know. It's a good question.
1: All right. right. We're going to look into Lake Michigan. Out of all the lakes, Lake Michigan has seen the most dangerous. Many ships and planes in this lake haven't necessarily crashed, but they have vanished altogether. There were different devastations where ships and planes have completely disappeared, and now we're going to look into it. In 1860, a wooden steamship, the Lady Elgin, collided with a smaller boat, the Augusta, which went on to sail safely to the harbor. The Lady Elgin continued to take on water until it sank, dragging 300 passengers to their deaths
0: okay wait a second how did that other ship not help them out
1: i don't know i'm still confused by that was isn't that boater etiquette i thought so too
0: that what are they assholes maybe they didn't realize they hit it i'm not sure how you yeah
1: exactly that's like the titanic oh what did we bump
0: it's just an iceberg. Well, and there was another ship that came to assist the Titanic afterwards. Right. Yeah.
1: At least somebody came to help, but it yeah. wasn't, I mean, the iceberg couldn't help them. I mean, well, Rose and Jack were both, well, Jack was frozen by that. Right. We also have the story of the Thomas Hume. And I'll let you tell that story.
0: All right, then. So Thomas Hume, picture it, it's May 21st, 1891. You've got seven sturdy sailors of strong Wisconsin stock, I said it well this time, drop a shipment of lumber off in Chicago, and then they board their ship, the Thomas Hume. They're sailing back to Muskegon, Michigan, to the Hackney Hume Lumber Mill. Their three-masted schooner has made the journey several times alongside the Lumber Company's other ship, the Rouse-Simmons. They set off from the port, and soon foreboding clouds darken the horizon. Storm a-coming, says one of the sailors, whose name I like to imagine was Rutherford. The Rouse-Simmons crew decide to turn back and return to Chicago to wait for calmer waters because they were probably smarter. Poltroons and milksops, all of you! Rutherford calls out after them. Retreat? Hell! As for me and my men, we sail for Muskegon. The Thomas Hume sails deep into the heart of Lake Michigan. Muskegon awaits the arrival of the ship, but it never comes. No word from the seven sailors. Hackey and Hume send out a search vessel, offering a steep reward for the ship's discovery. But nothing is found. No reward is claimed. And not even a single piece of floating wreckage is left on the water. 21 years pass, and now it's November twenty-second, 1912. A world war is on the horizon. For those of you who don't know your history, that's World War I. And a new generation of sturdy Wisconsin sailors is traversing the Lake Michigan waters. This time, that old fortunate vessel, the Rouse Simmons, is on another run. This time, they're transporting Christmas trees from Thompson, Michigan to Chicago. Captain Herman, oh, I'm going to butcher this last name, (laughs) Schnooderman, he helps load the boat full of tannin bombs and invites the Michigan lumberjacks to catch a free ride to Chicago with them. You know, if they want it. The crew of 16, along with the extra lumberjacks, set off into the waters. Again, yes, again, this ship never arrives at its destination. The ship was spotted sailing in clear conditions with a distress flag flying. A lifeboat is sent out to provide aid, but when it arrives, there's nothing to find. Again, no wreckage. A year later, one year. Christmas trees begin to wash up along the shore. A fisherman in Two Rivers, Wisconsin, catches Captain Schoonenemann's (laughs) wallet a year later. No further trace is discovered. The list of ships is long, and the stories are awash in speculation and misinformation. The Thomas Hume was discovered at the bottom of the lake, but not until 2006. And when they discovered it... It was in near-perfect condition. The Rouse-Simmons, that was found sunken in 165 feet of water, and no sign of what could have taken that ship down. Both of these shipwrecks, uncharacteristic of the normally placid and easy-navigable Lake Michigan, occurred within one specific triangle west to Manitowoc, Wisconsin, east to Ludington, Michigan, and south to Benton Harbor, Michigan. And these are only two wrecks of a much longer list. So just as we said, those weren't the only two ships that went down in Lake Michigan. In 1921, the Rosabella set sail with 11 passengers, it's a two-masted schooner used to transport supplies to the Benton Harbor House of David. Is that like a bridal house? Oh, David's bridal, goodness. did they come together? Oh, <laughs> the Harbor House of David, where you can get your wedding dress. Um, <laughs> With your flowers. The ship fails to reach its destination. Except in this case, the wreck hasn't disappeared. Oh, no, no. The ship is found floating upside down with no trace of a single passenger. I just think of, what was it, that flight on the Hudson with Sully? I mean, at least those people got out on a wing to get rescued. These These people did nothing. What are they, slackers? Anyway, examining the hull, there appears to be evidence of a collision, but no other vessel is found. And of course, there's no reports of an accident. The 11 crew members still have never been found. And then we have on April 28th, 1937. Now, this one is fascinating. It makes me think of the cruise ship stories. Yes. Doesn't it? Yeah. So, what we have is Captain George R. Donner, by the way, not part of the Donner family that ate each other. At least I don't think so. Well, he was never found. That's true. <laughs> Shh, giving it away. He vanished from his cabin after guiding his ship through the icy waters of Lake Michigan. The captain went to his cabin to rest, and about three hours later, a crew member went to alert him that they were nearing port. The door was locked from the inside. Go figure. The mate broke into the cabin, only to find it was empty. A search turned up, and no clues, and Donner's disappearance remains unsolved. Now my question is, maybe, you know, was there a porthole? And how big was this guy? Would he have fit through a porthole? Would he have jumped? Was he just done? But you would think, he's so close to shore. Why would he try and get out? These are all great ideas. I'm, they've never found him. He just went missing. Just gone. Space-time continuum sucked him up. But guess what, guys? Ladies and gentlemen, ships are not the only thing to go lost. in The Great Lakes Triangle or over Lake Michigan itself. So I'm going to turn it over to Courtney here, and she's going to tell you about some other items that are going missing in this area.
1: Oh, no. Ships are not the only thing missing. One of the most mysterious cases over Lake Michigan happened in 1950 when Northwest Airlines Flight 2501, which was carrying 58 people, crashed into Lake Michigan. It happens. But the thing is, the plane was never found. At the time, it was the deadliest commercial airliner accident in American history. The pilot had just requested a descent to descend to 2,500. Because of a severe electrical storm, which was lashing the lake with high-velocity winds, when the plane disappeared from radar. To this day, the plane wreckage has not been found, and the cause of the crash remains unknown.
0: Okay, wait a second. How could they not find a plane?
1: I, especially like Michigan, they're able to do sonar and everything, and it still has not been found.
0: So they've looked for it since modern technology and they still can't
1: find it yes in fact somebody just said that a plane has been found but i don't think it's this 2501 i have not found anything on that
0: i mean a commercial airliner is quite different than a private
1: right 58 people poof about two hours after the last communication with flight 2501 two police officers reported seeing a strange red light hovering over lake michigan and disappearing after 10 minutes, leading some to believe a UFO was to blame. Now, this isn't the first sightings of UFOs on Lake Michigan. In relation to Lake Michigan Triangle, there are other strange things. The generation of strange images of aircraft, quote-unquote, ghosts on the radars of O'Hare International Airport. Whoa,
0: whoa, 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 whoa. You're talking one of the busiest airports in the world has ghost planes on their radar?
1: Yep. They monitor the traffic in that region, and the images of these mysterious ghosts of the planes appear on the radar, confusing the flight controllers, causing confusion in the registry. Could you imagine?
0: Okay, so an air traffic controller already has one of the most stressful jobs there is.
1: One of the busiest ones in the area.
0: And we're talking Chicago O'Hare, so not the busiest, but one of the busiest. Oh, my God. I would be losing my flipping mind. <laughs>
1: Amen. It is observed that these images appear and disappear mysteriously without explanation, not being caused by defects in the equipment since they have been reviewed and are in order. Some theories suggest that aircraft may be ghosts of old planes that have been lost in time or even UFOs. We'll touch on the UFOs a little more.
0: So not only do we have ships, we've got planes both disappearing On Lake Michigan or in the Great Lakes Triangle, depending on where you are in the Great Lakes. But now we have individuals. So we're going to tell you the story here about a Stephen. I'm going to leave his last name out of it because as far as I know, he's still alive. And I don't really want Stephen calling me and complaining about this. So here's the story. This is one of the more stranger missing persons cases that has bubbled to the surface in the Lake Michigan region. Stephen was attending Hope College in Holland, Michigan, during February of 1978, when he made a fateful decision to make a solo cross-country ski trip on the icy shores of Lake Michigan. The young adventurer failed to return home the following day, causing an urgent search by local authorities and the Coast Guard. During an exhaustive search, a few items were finally retrieved. So, a couple hundred yards out onto the ice of Lake Michigan, items belonging to Stephen were discovered, but in a very peculiar fashion. Sitting in the snow were his skis, his poles, and a backpack. And according to researchers, it appeared as if Stephen had stepped out of these items, the skis, set down his poles, and had ventured out further onto the lake. The scenario started to become even more unusual when it was realized the tracks abruptly ended after a couple hundred feet. It was as if Stephen had vanished. Following days of searching, it was concluded that the adventurous student must have met his untimely fate in a fall through the ice. So, you know, we do stupid things when we're young. And it can be really disorienting in the snow for any of you who might be listening that aren't in a snowy area. Snow can get really disorienting. And the, the Great Lakes also, you know, with the different changes in weather, even with snow, we can get fog. So I could see this happen. But this is not where the story ends, is it, Courtney? Oh, no. oh, oh no, 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 this is about to get a whole lot weirder, people. So 14 and a half months later, that's right, 14.5 months later, over a year, Stephen awoke in a field in. Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Now, I don't know if he was attending a concert. (laughs) Just woke up to suddenly the fact he was Stephen again. Like, what was he doing before that? Anyway, he was 700 miles from the shores of Lake Michigan. You know, where he disappeared. At the time of his return, Stephen revealed to reporters, I didn't know where I was. I was wearing clothing that weren't mine. I started going through a pack, which I assumed was mine, and I found maps. I'd guess I was hitchhiking. I didn't know what the date was until I walked into town and got a newspaper. Stephen now found himself just 40 miles from his father's home. I'm assuming his father lives in Massachusetts. That's my
1: assumption.
0: Okay. Imagine the joy and amazement when Stephen knocked on the family door once again. I'm not sure amazement would quite cover it. Big one. I would I would probably wonder if I'm dealing with a zombie, honestly. Stephen claims to have absolutely no memory of the missing fourteen months of time. Upon return, Stephen said, The only thing I can think of is what mountain climbers suffer from loss of body heat and exhaustion. That combination can result in a temporary loss of memory.
1: For fourteen months?
0: Yeah, Stephen. Nice try, huh? Oh, he keeps going. He says, I have some really vague feelings. <laughs> I'm sorry. He's like every man. (laughs) Some vague feelings. (laughs) I have some running shoes. I feel like I've done a lot of running. God, he sounds like Forrest Gump. (laughs) (laughs) I also have a marathon t shirt from Wisconsin. Wisconsin? He
1: went
0: from Michigan to Wisconsin to Massachusetts? I mean, he ran a marathon, according to his t shirt. Oh my word. I don't know how I got it, Steven said. Stephen sounds, sounds like a winner. Stephen promised he would visit his family doctor, but would not, absolutely not be seeing a psychiatrist. Now, I kind of get that. But here's where it gets even funnier. To this day, Stephen does not discuss this incident. He either doesn't truly recall, or possibly he just prefers to keep such an unusual and personal experience private. And although he would not see a psychiatrist following the reappearance, he decided to become one as a career. I love it. I love that. <laughs> Today, he's both a psychiatrist and an author. So on the line of individuals having weird experiences in the Great Lakes Triangle, we bring you another. This starts with Canada's largest and newest grain carrier, the James C. Carruthers. It was lost in a great storm on November 11th of 1913. What's interesting is is that one of the Carruthers' crewmen, John Thompson, had decided to quit working on the James C. Carruthers just in time to avoid dying on her. However, a dead body, greatly resembling Thompson, washed ashore, and the resemblance was remarkable. Both the living John Thompson and the dead man had the initials J.T. tattooed on their left forearm, They had the same scars on the nose and leg. They had the same dental peculiarities. And each had the same two deformed toes. Beyond that, John Thompson's father at first identified the man as his son, and other family members agreed with the father's judgment. When the living version of John Thompson finally showed up at his own wake, He convinced his family who he was. What's even more fascinating about this story is that it still has not been solved. Quite a story. And it's just incredible enough to be true. And if it is true, well then, a whole new can of speculation is opened on the Great Lakes Triangle. And what's really going on there? Some thoughts as to what's going on in the triangle is that phenomenon In these areas include disappearances, missing time, UFOs, unexpected failure of electronics and extremely unusual weather, paranormal phenomena, time portals, unholy creatures, or is it the whims and cruelties of a mocking and malevolent god of old?
1: In my research, I have found that the Great Lakes region was at one time dotted with ancient mound sites covered in petroglyphs and home to many stellar stone circles. Several of the stone circles remain to this day and are considered both sacred and power spots by many. Hidden beneath the waters of Grand Traverse Bay lies an ancient stone circle that hasn't been visible to humans for possibly 10 to 12,000 years. That is, until 2007, when underwater archaeologist Mark Holly made a discovery of a lifetime. While doing sonar scans for shipwrecks, something unexpected began to show up on radar. Beneath approximately 40 feet of water appeared to be a ring, like feature of stones. Extending from the large ring of stone was a very straight line of stones leading away from the circle for around one mile. The circle consisted of extremely large boulders, some as large as 4 to 5 feet. One boulder in particular appeared to have an incredible carving of a mastodon on it. Considering both the carving and the fact this site is now underwater, archaeologists now feel this site may be over 10,000 years old. Archaeologists have also speculated that this could have been a caribou driveling and the circle a hunting fort of sorts. Less than 100 miles, almost directly north, sits another ancient circle, the Great Stone Circle of Beaver Island. An interesting fact is that there has been an unusual number of unexplained plane and ship incidences in this area. Ancient cultures around the world would build stone circles not only to track the stars, but to connect with the cosmic energies that they felt permeated that sacred landscape. Coincidentally, or not, many times the ancient stone circles would have lines of stones following energy lines, or ley lines, away from the main circle. This scenario seems very familiar when looking at the Mammoth Circle. Could this ancient circle have been a marker of sorts for cosmic energies? Or a portal or a place to try to connect with other realms? Could these regions that may had once rippled space and time still be active today? An important point of interest is the fact that many of the ancient sacred sites and zones of mystery contain magnetic and gravitational anomalies. In 1998, there was a landmark study done in regards to Native American sacred landscapes. The report was researched and edited by Vine Deloria from the University of Colorado and Richard Stoffel from the University of Arizona. On page 36 of the report, it points out, several tribes have traditions which recount their passage from another star system to this one and their emergence on our planet at a particular location. These sites may be understood as portals, where it is possible to pass from one universe to another. With the advent of chaos theory and the elaboration of knowledge of the potential black holes in the space-time fabric of the universe, these traditions now take on added significance. Some more thoughts to chew on. Another commonality between the Great Lakes sacred sites and the unusual occurrences that take place around them may have to do with magnetism there seems to be a big enough connection to persuade several governments to launch heavily funded studies. In the early 50s, Canadian engineer and UFO researcher Wilbert Smith proposed to the Canadian Department of Transport a study of the unknown objects using their pre-existing equipment. The cover for the study was there would be geomagnetic experiments taking place. In 1953, Project Magnet moved into a borrowed Department of Transport building at Shirley's Bay on the Ottawa River. Research included a magnetometer, a gamma ray detector, a powerful radio receiver, and a gravimeter to measure gravity fields in the atmosphere. Wilbert Smith believed the unexplained phenomenon taking place over the lakes surely had something to do with magnets. The Canadian Project Magnet only lasted a few years, with the information collected being classified. Smith later revealed he truly felt there were objects, and likely occupants, from outside our time and space that were using magnetic forces as a way of propulsion. Researchers have known that the Earth and Sun must be connected. Recently, in an unusual and unexpected way, this cosmic connection was confirmed. Scientists revealed that a portal opens up connecting our sun to the Earth. Researchers have discovered that a magnetic portal opens linking the sun to the Earth, 93 million miles away. It's called a flux transfer event, or FTE. The portal takes the form of a magnetic cylinder about as wide as Earth. Is it possible this magnetic portal cylinder concentrates its cosmic energies at particular locations on the planet? Could these magnetic energies and portals be accumulating in particular locations, creating anomalies and even ripples in space and time? Which brings us to an article by George Cunningham T.
0: So according to George Cunningham, he had some pretty interesting theories that he put forward regarding the Great Lakes Triangle. This includes underwater volcanic activity, magnetic force fields, and aquatic beings. The last mentioned theory, while admittedly (laughs) appearing to be the most far-fetched, has a lot going for it. Why? Because a submarine species of humanoid beings would have to possess a remarkable degree of intelligence and technical ability, and much of the phenomena connected with the triangle mysteries appears to be intelligently directed. Studying the reports of Great Lakes disappearances, George noticed that there was a repetitive factor in many of them, a link, such as the purpose of the trip was to test a new compass. And then again, we bring up who we talked about before, the James C. Crothers, and you've got people just mysteriously showing up as a doppelganger to another person. With the reoccurring emphasis of new, this leads us to ask, is there some intelligent selective agency at work here? Are they collecting samples of new or improved human inventions? Is this activity conducted in order to assist the collectors in assessing our technological process? Or are they collecting for Cosmic Smithsonian Institution? Charles Berlitz, the writer-researcher most prominently associated with the Bermuda Triangle, speculates along similar lines with regard to an intelligent submarine species. He compiled and examined a list of cargoes carried by missing ships to see if a preference for certain goods was being demonstrated. His conclusion is that the lost cargoes were so varied, no such preferential selection could be proved. However, writes Burlitz, in examining the list, we note a high potential of military and naval vessels, and especially aircraft, almost all during peacetime. These range from prop planes through turbojets to superjets, and furnish by coincidence a sort of graded sampling of our military aircraft through the decades, with the exception of our space capsules, which, noting the occasional presence of UFOs, have not disappeared. One common denominator, Burlitz finally concludes his cargo speculation with the observation that the one unifying factor and special ingredient common to all types of disappearances is apparently human beings human beings is that really the quest not human inventions but human beings themselves abductions and space snappings are not new but can we or should we link the UFOs To the USOs, or Unidentified Submarine Objects, are they one and the same? Are the operators of the Golden Discs, which have zipped across our skies for thousands of years, the same folks who flit furtively beneath the waves of seas and lakes, the real monsters of the deep, armed with sophisticated weaponry with incredible power? We can only guess at. But let's hold on here a moment. Isn't there a flaw in the supposition that they are after a supply of human beings? With the capture and abduction methods being used, wouldn't the victims end up being dead victims? And what use would a shipload of dead sailors be to anyone? Is the mysterious and malevolent force directed by some unknown but suspected intelligent race of either terrestrial origin or space alien sources in order to procure for itself a supply of humans? And are the abducted humans required as biological specimens or as slaves? Or is this just too ridiculous to even consider? What are your thoughts? Now's a good time to put down your cup of coffee. Think about the Great Lakes Triangle and feel free to comment on this podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, but you'd like to see it in person, feel free to join us on August 7th at 10 a.m. in the morning at Summer's Awkward Acres Farm. You can find us on Facebook. In the meantime, keep it weird, keep it wonderful, and keep it woohoo.